Petersfield's Shine Radio. Welcome to this month's Drinking with Phil and Max. What are we talking about this month? Well, we've got a few things. We've got some wine news. We've got drinking days. I think we need to have a bit of an update about how we're doing with our studies, Phil. Oh, the uh, studies. After last month. Feel the fear and do it anyway. Well, just feel the fear in this case. Um, and then I think we were going to talk about Musker Day, weren't we? I'm going to tell you a bit about Musker Day. You're going to pick one. And, mm-hmm. of course, we are returning to the last pubs of Petersfield. Oh, yes, I forgot the spooky spookies. We need updates and gossip about what's been going on in the in the lost pubs of Petersfield. You left us with a cliffhanger last time, Phil. There is tons of that stuff. And I also have been speaking to uh, Natalia Watson from WSET. She's oh, the great. queen of beers at WSET. Oh, how so. exciting. Yes. Well, oh, brilliant. we better Should get on with it. There's then? lots to yes. get through. So where are we going first? What about some wine news? Yeah, totally. So I've got a couple of things. So the, um, this one struck me. So the restaurant that yeah, I'm sure we've all seen the film Ratatouille, the restaurant that that's based on has been doing its, I won't say its annual stock check because they have got so much wine in the cellar. They have got thousands and thousands of bottles. They do it infrequently, but they've been doing their stock check, Phil. And they've discovered during the course of this that 83 bottles are missing from their stock. Oh, 80? Well, out of thousands of bottles, that doesn't sound too bad. No, that's worth $1.6 million, Phil. That sounds really bad. <laughs> <laughs> that pesky little rat has been up to it. <laughs> well, this is the place that has got hundreds of metres of tunnels down yes. under the ground by the Seine, isn't it? Oh, it is. It's such an interesting little place, but I'm sure you can look up that story if you're interested. But I'm just like, I have not mislaid 83 bottles in my wine cellar. I know where they all are, Phil. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't have any that have accidentally appeared from anywhere. You go and read um, them a bedtime story every night. I could. Um, if I did want to fill up my wine cellar, and I'm telling you this now because this is happening in April, so you've got some time to save up for this one. Um, okay. Le, Ga- Le Gavroche, the very famous restaurant in London that was owned by the Rue Brothers, uh, closed yeah, yeah. in January. Very sadly, obviously, gastro- I never I never went. I never had the opportunity. Uh, slightly out of my budget range. Oh, um, terribly famous it's closed its doors but they're having a bit of a sale now and they've got some stuff in their wine cellar they want to sell off so there's a couple of options that you could go for so one no, and i think tell. this is an absolute bargain phil some romane conti so from bourgogne that's a 2013 grand crew sounds good that's, it's going to go for about twelve thousand pounds they reckon a case for a bottle phil a bottle do you want something a little more reasonable then perhaps yeah yeah okay still in the same region so and obviously a recognized a well-recognized nice AC, an extremely nice kind of area. Caught on Charlemagne, you could get a bottle, well, you could in fact get a magnum of that. A magnum two bottles? From mere £600. Oh, they're practically giving it away. Well, they are, aren't they? So they, they, the sale is going to be really interesting. It'll probably be worth having a little look, because then you'll be able to see who's uh, who's buying what. But they've got, obviously, I've just mentioned two very famous Bourgogne offers, uh, but Bordeaux, Rhone, Port and various other things will all be, all be available for the discern collector delightful in other news getting getting serious mm-hmm. um let's talk about the uk wine harvest we've had the harvest report in <gasps> oh, for yes. 2023 and 
It is being called the Miracle Harvest. <gasps> they reckon wow, 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 wow. 20 to 22 million bottles production from this harvest. 50% bigger than the previous record set in 2018. Oh my God, that's amazing! Reflects the, the the stupendous growing conditions, but also the enormous acceleration of the UK wine industry. Loads this... more vineyards, loads more. Oh going my on. gosh, yes, there is. But do you know what's really exciting about this, Phil? Is obviously they're not going to flood the market necessarily with that many more bottles. What it gives us the opportunity is to store wine and make reserve and have reserve wines so that we can weather any future potential storms that's obviously we hope that doesn't happen but you know and and good years tend to go in pairs so we're likely to get another good year next year but you know there are times when uh when harvest isn't as great so we'll have a nice stock of reserve wine but it gives us many more options for experimental wine making as well which is always really exciting isn't it bit of innovation yeah bit of Um, innovation yeah top four grapes as you would predict the first three chardonnay pinot noir pinot meunier yeah what's the other one then the big Champagne grapes. Coming in at number four, a fine showing from Bacchus. Oh, my goodness. Now, that is a grape. I have to say, I have not highly rated, but I'm guessing this is having a high yield because the the climactic conditions are... Well, we're talking nearly 10 tonnes per hectare, which is blinking good going. But the important thing is we're making great wine with it now. As as, as (laughs) yourself, I didn't really rate it a few years ago, but Mm. now... The still wines and the sparkling wines from Bacchus, well worth a go. Mm, okay. Really I good can't stuff. say I've had a sparkling wine from Bacchus, so I will look out mm. for that. And I'll be a little bit braver about looking for vintages from 2023. So great things happening in UK wine. Yes. And that leads me to a couple of other little um, little pieces yeah. Which are from our Brexit bonus. Oh, we love a Brexit bonus, don't we? Well, I, I'd, I'd like so you to tell me more about what they are. We talked about PK last we month. We did talk about PK because I'm still laughing. Yeah. Yeah, there's, yes. there's more to come. There's, there, mm-hmm. It's the gift that keeps on giving. Now, makers of English sparkling wine no longer need to use mushroom-shaped toppers and foil covers on bottlenecks, which will help to reduce waste and costs. Our departure from the EU gives us the opportunity to review and scrap outdated and burdensome rules that have been holding back our wine sector. This is what Stephen Barclay is is telling us, that these reforms are going to make traders more profitable, more dynamic, more sustainable, freeing them from pointless red tape. Okay, I've got... And another one that Mm -hmm. they've got in the same package, they are now removing the restriction on blending imported wines with UK wine. So you can, you can mix whatever you like together and say, there you go. And oh, my gosh. I've got many, many, many things to say about this, Phil. The first well, thing. Let me, let me just... <laughs> <laughs> hold, hold hard. Hold, hold my lines. Yes, let absolutely. Let me just tell you one thing. I, there's lots of people who have gone, oh, yes, yes, this is jolly good. And like yourself, I, I have... I have got it all pent up here, ready to go. But let's let's let uh, Jamie Good, very well-known wine writer, say what he thinks. Yes. He thinks that this is a move which could encourage existing UK winemakers to buy their cheapest bulk wines before blending and sell them on at low prices. We have just been talking about the fantastic harvest, the fantastic mm. reputation of UK wine, the blossoming of innovation. 
and we have got some rules here which some of them make no sense and mm. some of them are a license to undermine the success of UK wine. I know. It's, what this are is, you this, doing? What are we doing? So I'm going to come to the cork first because that surprises me and it makes me wonder how much, who might have asked for this in the first place because there's a reason that you cork bottles of sparkling wine in the way that you do and that's largely to do with the extremely high atmospheric pressure <laughs> that you're trying to contain in the bottle two <laughs> london bus tires worth it is two london bus tires it is that's 6.5 atms if you want to be technical so this is the course coming out so so that is a lot of pressure and you put the caps in that we have and then you you use the cages to contain all of that pressure also there's quite a lot of pomp and circumstance that goes with opening a bottle of fizz isn't there where you what? get that lovely lovely sound and all the you ceremony do. And all that kind of stuff. There's a lot going on. And yeah, and the, a the only thing is not going to do the thing. Yeah. The only thing I can see that they could do to take advantage of this is when they're doing the second fermentation, they put a crown cap yes. on the bottle. And then yes. they disgorge and then they put the real cork in, which, yes, by the way, course. is not mushroom shaped. It's no, cylindrical. It's not. Yes. Um, so what they could do is say, OK, we'll just stick another crown cap on the bottle. And we've yes, gone away no, they with the could, foil. absolutely. Yes. And the foil is a kind of an anachronism. It was there because mm. in the olden days, that disgorging was done by hand. You topped it up. Some got topped up more than others. And the punter went into the shop and bought the full bottles instead of the half empty Well, of course they bottles. did. Of course they did. But now but it's now, become a really English important part of the... goes yeah. on the shelf next to a bottle yeah. of champagne. The champagne one is all dressed in its finery. Yeah. And ours yeah. looks like an oversized bottle of beer. What's the message? What's the yeah, message there? Yeah. Quite apart from what might on earth be going on with all that pressure Mugs, in the Mugs, bottle. think of your blood pressure, girl. <laughs> <laughs> we need to draw a line under this before our, our spleens explode. <laughs> Good on them for wanting to innovate, wanting to be more sustainable. And I'm going to redress the balance ever so slightly in that I did find one little piece which I thought, yeah, good for you. That'll help. Mm -hmm. um, yes. They are now permitting the uh, use of a few more hybrid varieties of grapes to reduce vine loss and protect against disease and keep them oh, going yes. against the, the threat of, of climate change. Now, this, been this is much, much development in, in, yes. in hybrid grapes, which are Good. much more disease resistant. And we're going to use some more of those. So that's great. much more sensible and the that's kind of stuff we should be one. thinking about, Phil, rather than like let go and buy some cheap wine and blend it in with our own, because that's just that's not a quality product. Oh, this has made me ranty. But let's calm ourselves down and let's <laughs> let's move on. Move on. So tell me, Phil, all about Muscadet. Muscadet. Well, We've always thought of this as our grape of the month slot, but of course Muscadet is not a grape, it's a wine. It's a wine appellation up in the Loire. The grape we're concerned with is Melon de Bourgogne. It is used in a few other places as a blending grape, but the only place where it's got any kind of level of respect at all is in Muscadet, where mm -hmm. it's, it's used to make that lovely maritime wine, I'm going to call it. Yeah, uh, I was going to say, climate comes into the, this wine quite a lot, doesn't it, Phil? So we're as far it a maritime west wine is, yeah. down the Loire as you can get. We're right on the Atlantic. So we've got a very cool, very damp climate. We've got lots of sea breezes. And the wine, what it brings to you in its native state, a little bit of citrus, some bright acidity, some minerality, and a bit of salt. And that's your lot. Mm. It's, it's not... It's not 
a hugely exciting wine. It has to be said. No, so- but they, yeah. What do they do to it, Phil? Because it is actually quite. If you get a good one, it can be really good. But they've got well, processes, so those processes. But let me just tease you a little bit. So mm-hmm. we've got the generic Muscadet Appellation, mm-hmm. which covers the whole area. But then within that, we've got another three subdivisions, special places for Muscadet. Mm-hmm. And that's got to tell you that there is something interesting going on. There's something worthwhile going on. So we've got uh, Muscadet uh, Cote de la Loire, mm-hmm. the, the hills of the Loire. We've got Muscadet Serre et Main, which is the big place. It's the one that everybody's heard of. It's the one you'll see on the bottles on the shelves. Yeah. Produces yeah. 80% of all the Muscadet that there is. These right. guys were all set up in 1936, 1937. But then there's Muscadet Côte de Grand Lure, mm-hmm. which was established only in 1994. Mm-hmm. It's got a little bit of a, a microclimate. And if you can find it, that's a, a slightly more interesting version to pick out. Okay. But they've all got something in common. The good Muscadet wines will all have in lovely little letters underneath the Muscadet, sur lis. Mm-hmm. They're, they're actually aged on the lees, on the yeast cells that ah. have been doing the fermentation. So we to get the flavour and, and more the yumminess. flavour, yeah. more body, yeah. more smoothness, to give it a little je ne sais quoi. Mm, a little juge. It can be sometimes, and so I've had some uh, some of these where there's almost a slight tingle. It's not. I wouldn't say it's a bubble or any description, but a slight pétillon. It's yeah, not it's quite a pétillon. Yeah. It's just on the edge of perception, really, isn't it? Yeah, I know it exactly is, what you mean. But you know, what I mean, it's like that little tongue tingly kind of the zappy little feel to it. Mm. It's a really lush wine. So yeah. Well, it's not lush in the sense of being. Rich and full, it's no, it's, no, but lush in the sense. I think, of I think it's the spill. Welsh yeah. use of the word, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it's it nice, is particularly yeah. yes. if you have yeah. it with what you're supposed to have it with, which is, of course, a lovely big plate of seafood. Ooh, or, yes, or yes. if you're inclined, uh, some oysters. I'm personally I'm, I'm not, inclined. not inclined. No, uh, no, I'm not bogeys inclined. Bogies in a shell, if you ask me, but um. <laughs> No, Other fortunately, nobody did for. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I think that it's a really nice example of where wine and food kind of match their terroir so completely, don't they? Which is one of the things you learn early on in kind of wine and food matching. It's like the the food that grows near the vine is normally pairs really well. So we've got that beautiful maritime, straight on the coast kind of salt in the air, sea spray kind of feeling, and the food and the wine going really well together in a beautiful, but beautiful match. They are. A- perfect match and whenever you're looking what wine shall i have with this food well what wine is grown next to that food yeah exactly and it's a really you're good never going to go far wrong pizza and chianti it works yes. for, a, for a reason <laughs> i don't know what grows next to sausage rolls phil but you know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> now there are obviously some little differences between the different adolescents but broadly they're much the same mm-hmm the interesting thing about Muscadet is, apart from if we leave out fortified wines, yeah, it is. You should remember this for your French wine scholar. It is the only appellation where they mandate a maximum level of alcohol. Yeah. Everywhere else, the rules that you have to follow have a minimum level. Mm-hmm. Muscadet maximum level. It cannot be more than twelve percent. Even after chaptalisation, yep. which is adding sugar when you've had a rotten season, yep. 
if it's over 12%, it's not Muscadet. It doesn't, no. doesn't, doesn't abide by the rules. No, and they sell it as a more regional kind of... Yeah. Uh, they sell it as more regional wine. There's some really interesting stuff that's been going on, actually, in that part of the world about rules and bits and bobs that, you know... Look at the with yeah. all her book learning. Yeah. Well, all my book learning that I now can't remember what, it, what some of those <laughs> things are, what they are. But yeah, left us on a cliffhanger, Phil, with our pubs of Petersfield <sighs> last month. Pubs of Petersfield. Lost. You have to say lost pubs of Petersfield. Absolutely. As, as if it's you know on the moors with fog with mist and, and fog. All right. So the lost the, pubs of the Petersfield. cries of beasts. We're not painting a beautiful picture of our town here, are we? So, um, so you left us on a cliffhanger anyway, with promises so, of things to come. Since then, I've been and absolutely steeped myself in the history of the lost pubs of Petersfield. Excellent. With the fine folk of the Petersfield Museum. Speaking well, they should know. Yes. Well, they do know. Yes. And they do the walks and they've got big folders full of information about this. So I went and had... A lovely chat with Ryan Watts, who is the education manager for the museum. And the chats are so long and so involved. We're going to space them out over a couple of months. Not to mention Bill Gosney, who is an absolute fount of knowledge on all things historic and Petersfield. So this one is going to run and run. Oh, excellent. Let's start you off with a little bit of Ryan. In our ongoing quest to identify... The stories behind the lost pubs of Petersfield. I've now turned up at what should have been my first port of call, obviously, the <laughs> Petersfield Museum and the wonderful Ryan Watts. How are you doing, Ryan? Oh, not too bad. Thank you very much, Phil. Not too bad. Actually, doing this has reminded me that my wife actually came on a lost pubs walk a couple of years ago. So I'm going to give her a half credit as to where the idea of doing well, this has come from. The whole credit. Anyway, you do actually have a walk that goes around the lost pubs of Petersfield, don't you? Is yeah. that still running? Not this year. We're kind of refining it slightly to be more about the whole of alcohol in Petersfield. So it kind of brings in some different stories of all the different links with alcohol that the town mm. has. So the gin, um, the breweries. The gin, the breweries, the, breweries the wine, the pubs. So it kind of incorporates all of that. And then also just narrowing it down is difficult. Streamline it to get the most interesting stories over. But we're looking at over 40 pubs that have come and gone in Petersfield over the years and some of them have fantastic stories some of them are literally just a name on a license <laughs> uh, and then there's added difficulties and you may have found this when looking at lost pubs um, the names of pubs will change or they will tend to move with the licensee so when someone moves from one pub to another they'll take the pub name with them so things like the dolphin that is down on the end of the high street where oh, Dolphin Hall is now and um, that had been a red line at some point I also think it had been a rising sun at some point but there's also been a rising sun down further slightly further down on Dragon Street and obviously we know the red line has now crossed the road a white heart I think there's been two different locations of white hearts over the years same licensee he just had to move from one premises to another oh. and he took the name with him it's trying to just refine everything that we know and make sure that it's correct, it's updated, and we've got the best stories to tell. We're actually at the museum at the moment, and I thought we might do a little tour from here, out around the square and down the high street. The nearest one to where we sit right now is, of course, Josie's. Yes, yeah, so um, Josie's, uh, and you can still see the evidence for this if you look up on the on the roof, and I always say whenever you're walking around a town or anything, always look up and down because there's stuff that you'll miss. And it still uh, it says the Bell Inn, and we know that 
it was a pub called the Bellin uh, as far back as the earliest record was 1821. Mm-hmm. Um, for that, and again, when you go through, because it's a there's a legality to it. There's quite good paperwork to know who was there, so we know that there's a chap called William Fitz ran the pub there, but that wasn't his primary occupation. He was actually a wheelwright or a cart fitter, um, and his kind of workshop was behind the pub. So it's this kind of the early version of quick fit. You, you take your cart <laughs> round the back to have the wheel done and you, you go into a pub while you're waiting. And you don't have to have it fixed because because you've been drinking. When you come out, you think it's fixed. <laughs> but again, it's another problem with researching pubs as well. Landlords tended to have a second or a primary occupation and landlords were secondary. Very interesting um, that the pub was not in the building that it is now. The Bell, uh, it was a different pub. It got pulled down in a oh, different building. It got pulled down in 1901 by the Amy Brewery that used to be oh, where yes, Little yes. John's Bathrooms is. And it was being run by Elizabeth Amy um, at a time when business women were few and far between. But she was apparently a formidable force. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she pulled it down to rebuild it in the style that it is now. Uh, and that was, yeah, in 1904 that was finished. And then over the years, it changed. Lots of people may remember at one point it was uh, Foggy's Wine Bar. Yes. Um, people tell me about that. Uh, and then it was Four Candles when I That's right. first yes. came as a restaurant. Um, and now it's obviously Josie's. Um, so it's kind of kept its um, hospitality element to yeah. it. Yeah, there's a, there's a lineage back yeah. to what it used to be. But you can't get your cart fixed there. But anymore. you can't get your cart fixed there anymore, no. Oh, dear, how times change. Round the corner, into the square, and it, it seems to me that practically every building on the square has been a pub at one time or another. Possibly <laughs> not including the church, although I don't know. You may tell me different. No, so, um, well, they would have done mass with wine there at some point, if you wanted serving of alcohol no so there's there's lots around some that people will remember and some that are still there so the george is one of the oldest pubs that is still a pub today um one could possibly argue it's the longest continuing business in one location uh in petersfield the drum might might run buy, it, might buy for yeah. it for that the george used to be three times the size that it is um, and stretch up to the edge of sheep street so kind of take up where the library is now. Uh-huh. And we would have known it as a, or it would have been called a coaching inn, a mix between a pub and a hotel. So people would come into town on the coaches, rent a room, stay there, get be able to get food um, and stuff. Uh, but the section that remains uh, is what we would, uh, what was called a tap room, um, which was really just a, a serving hatch or a very small serving room where typically the locals would go and you buy your beer in a flagon and you would take it away with you basically it was an off license in in that sort of sense or they might have a few stools and a rudimentary kind of bar to sit at Um, but really it was a case of going no you buy it and then you can go and drink it out on the square so you've got three levels of hostelry we've got the, the the tap which is kind of hole in the wall thing yeah we've got the pub and we've got the coaching inn yeah. Now, last month, Mags and I had a vigorous discussion about what constituted a pub, and we found it very difficult to actually describe a precise specification of what makes a pub. Was there such a specification at this time? Not an official one that I know of. In my head, the distinction is that the tap, you didn't stay in. It was very much you went in, you bought in flaggers, and you left. A pub, I think, is the next stage up. You were able to stay in there and probably get food basic kind of basic meal um, but it had no accommodation and then your coaching in was one where actually it was primarily 
somewhere to stay where you could also have your alcohol and um, conduct business. Um, mm-hmm. And I think pubs actually, you could conduct business in those. So they had booths, they had seating. Um, it was kind of more of a sit down, able to stay and be reasonably comfortable compared to the tap where it was that horrible rickety stool or out. Okay. So there you are. That's quite interesting. I wonder whether modern pubs who call themselves the tap or the brewer's tap or, you know, the whatever the name of it, tap, understand that there's a difference between taps and coaching in. This, this means you're shoving them outside yeah, in the yeah, rain. Yeah, totally, exactly. So, <laughs> so I, I think that's been lost in translation over time and it's just become a nice nice phrase that we use. But it's really interesting, the distinction, because you would presumably pay less for your grog in a tap than oh, you yeah. would in a, you know. No so, facilities. Yeah, totally. You can't so, do business in a tap, you see. Yeah, well, I mean, it depends on the kind of business you want to do in a pub, doesn't it? <laughs> I so, bet there's some business that went on. I bet there's quite a lot of business that went on, but not probably a, a bit more nefarious than we should probably be talking about. But, but no, I think that's really interesting. Yeah, pubs for everybody, the bearing in mind social class was more important when all this was kind of well, like... Well, you had the about. public bar. Everybody yeah. was welcome in the public mm. bar. And then there was the saloon bar, which was for That always sounds like I'm going to swing in with my guns and, you know, <laughs> cowboy style yeah. But Interesting that they had those different gradations. Mm. And we were struggling with how we would categorise pubs now yeah. we need a new set of distinctions for the yeah, modern do, what world. Is, what is a pub? We'll, and we were talking about we'll we were talking about that. the townhouse in particular, weren't but we? Anyway, but anyway, yeah, yeah. loads more to come on oh, the historic missing inns of Petersfield. Oh, I look forward to the rest of that. We move on to the wonderful world of education, expanding our horizons, serving you, our listeners, by building up our knowledge. Mags, how's the French Wine Scholar course going? So for those of you who didn't listen last month, I have... Who are you? We want your names. We're going to come round. For those of you who didn't listen last month, I have foolishly signed up to do a qualification called the French Wine Scholar. Uh, Phil was regaling me with the fact that he also looked at this and then ran away. I have not run away. I've paid the money, so I've got to take the choice now. Yes, it's interesting, Phil. Everything that you said last time about it being lists and lists and lists is absolutely true. There is a lot to learn. There are 13 French wine regions. There are lists of Appalachians where you need to know soil types. You need to know differentials in the winemaking process. Obviously, principal grapes and secondary grapes. And, you know, whether whether the mother's brother's uncle has historically been involved in (laughs) buying and selling of it. And, you know, all of these kind of things. You need to know all of that for 13 wine regions. So in Bourgogne alone, there are 39 Appalachians. And that's without any of the Grand Cru that you need to know. <laughs> and, and you need to know about them. I need to know about all of them. But this, that bit is giving me the heebies because there is no way I can retain all that kind of knowledge and information. And as the only English-speaking Brit in the class that will be there, I feel I may be at something of a disadvantage because the French people who I'm taking the course with will naturally have, number one, have better understanding of the language and they'll have more of a natural kind of instinct for the geography of their their country and all of that kind of stuff that you build up over time so for me what's really interesting is some of the stuff that takes you back into the kind of the history because i've always loved the history stuff and the history and the wine and the you know all the kind of the little bits of politics and fiddling about between this and it was owned by the church and all that sort of stuff is all really interesting to me like about how it's all got to the point it is today so that's kind of interesting i have to say 
because we don't learn any of that. So our, my knowledge of kind of European history is very much two pages in a textbook from when I did history at school. Whereas actually now it comes alive when you've got some context to it. And, and you start to understand like... how wine is tied up with like, what's wine got to do with Joan of Arc? And you're like, well, it has actually, you know, quite a lot. History from the point of view of the people rather yes. than history from the point of view of the politicians yes, absolutely. and the kings yeah, yeah, yeah. and the wars. And yeah. talk about what people did, how people lived, yeah, yeah. why things ended up the yeah, way yeah, that yeah. they were. Yeah, totally. I think that makes it ten times more interesting. It is ten times more interesting. And obviously there's a lot that's gone in France, you know, historically, like north and south and, you know, here and there and bits owned by us and bits owned, you know, and the Dutch have been perilously involved in parts of it and bits of Germany used to be France and, you know, probably still think they are. And so all of it's really interesting. But there's no chance on this earth I am going to remember just, all of the Appalachian Grand Cru and soil types. Just remind me, the exam you do at the end of this, is that an open book exam? No, it's not, Phil. <laughs> <laughs> I only did that to tease. It's not, Phil. So uh, there will actually, in fact, be a couple of parts to the exam. So there is a blind tasting, but you don't get many points for that, which is good, because by that point I shall be just drinking for the elixir <laughs> opportunity to calm me down for the rest of it. There's a small uh, amount of points for an oral question that you're presented with. There is a multiple choice, and that's the bulk paper. I've got a test example of that, and there is some complicated stuff in there. So it's a multiple choice thing, and then there's a, a separate written paper. <sighs> Golly. With any random question that you may ask. And you wondered why I ran away screaming. Yes, absolutely. Okay. But I've committed to this now. I've paid for the course. I'm going to France. I'm going to have a great time with some other French people who I haven't met and yet. And you're going to drink some lovely wine and, and you're going to come away with loads more knowledge. And I might catch up with happens. a friend. And, you know, there's all of that kind of stuff going to go on with it. So I think we're embracing it for the experience of, of the learning rather than for the... I will be terribly disappointed if I don't get the exam because I always will be and I've, that's how I am. I'm a bit competitive. Yeah. <laughs> A little bit competitive. So I will be disappointed in myself, but I am being kind to myself that I am still forwarding my knowledge and my learning. And you will no longer be able to tease me perilously about being oh, Miss you, New World. You will be able to pull the wool over my eyes left, right and centre. I know, it? it's like I'll find out how funny you're talking horse people. <laughs> <laughs> I won't, though. I won't, because you don't, because you know, you know this stuff. And so I'm really enjoying learning it. But, you know, I still, I'm trying different wines and things like that, but I'm also... I think I'd come back to the fact the reason I quite like New World Wine is because it's not as complicated as that <laughs> and they've made it unnecessarily complicated for themselves. They really They have. really, really have. So tell me about the beer course, Phil. Have you got the beer for you? So I have put my money where my mouth is. I have also paid my money. I've signed up to do the Level 2 beer course. Yes. Uh, be gone, Level 1. I don't need no, that. No, I don't think you need that because you do You do know quite a lot about this. I mean, you're doing pubs, you're doing... You've talked about beer a lot on the show, Phil. I have now got access to the WSEC online learning environment. Okay. I have my learning dashboard. Mm -hmm. And at the moment, I've signed on. I've updated my little profile picture. And the dashboard tells me I have no courses registered. OK, so you're waiting to catch so, up. <laughs> so I'm waiting for them to catch up with that. But I'm also going to be speaking tomorrow, and you will hear it in this show, mm -hmm. to the person responsible for the beer courses at WSET. Oh, now that's a bit of a coup. That'll be really interesting. So... Are you trying to get an unfair advantage on your cohort? Oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> but I have I have been drinking a lot of beer. I've been to Germany. Oh, we'll hear about that. Great in a place yeah. To, yeah. to drink mm -hmm. beer. 
and uh, I'm determined to study assiduously. My pack of books is on its way Excellent. in the post. Well, it would be interesting to hear about your experience because when we've done WSC2 before, we've done them. We've chosen to do them in a classroom environment. They have always done online options, but we chose to do it in a classroom environment. So it's going to be different doing it online. I think it would be better done in a classroom, but at the moment, it's just not. It's just not something I can fit in. I think this is this is my 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 advice to you, having spent quite a lot of time in the books already, is you need to make yourself a little study schedule to get through it all and chunk it down into chapters and be really committed. So this past weekend, I have been dull as Dollsville, and I've literally from like midday till six o'clock just been in the books, only emerging for cups of tea because there's so much of it, Phil. Well, my plan is get the books. Turn immediately to the test papers. See what score I get before I've read the books. I see. This was the technique I did use when I, because I have got a test paper and I did have a go at it and I did not pass. So I know. Well, I know. Well, I know. You can't expect that when you haven't read all the books and you know it's your weakest knowledge. So you might do quite well. But I have got some test papers. But having done that, I realised I actually needed to read everything and then go back and start to look at learning objectives. Make sure I understand what all of those are. What are the bits of knowledge they want me to have? And then when I've done that, then I'm going to go and start doing test papers. The course does look does look very interesting. It goes into rather more detail than I've been into with this sort of stuff before. And I noticed on the you remember when we did WSET, you had the, the structured approach to tasting. Yes. Both at level systemic, two and yeah. at level three. So there's one of those for beer. And the beer one actually includes uh, a section which is all about the faults in beer. Oh, okay. As Actually as part of, as the, part tasting of the tasting guide. Yeah. So I thought, oh, that's that's an interesting thing to to include in there. It's the structure of it and the principle of it very similar to what we know already. The structure is is yeah. very similar and it's a common language. Yes, it is. And that's you, why as you'd expect. It. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Uh, so. Uh, oh well, that sounds really interesting. So the t- by the time we talk to you next month, Phil, I will have completed my studies in France. I will not have completed mine because when you do the online thing, you are given a window which says this is the window on which you will learn and here is the date when you'll take the exam. Ah, oh, okay. Because it's it's an online adjudicated exam. Okay. So they yep. check Serious. that you're not yeah, reading yeah, the yeah. books or yeah, anything yeah. like that. Yeah. That is towards the end of April. Okay. Depending on when we record, we mm. might... N- well, I might have taken the exam, but I probably won't know the result. Yeah. Okay. But I'll have a feel for it. You'll have a feel I'll for it. I'll either be feeling the fear or, mine, yeah. or yeah. celebrating... Yeah. With a beer. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> but meanwhile, I'm speaking with Natalia Watson from WSET. Hi, Natalia. How are you today? Hi, I'm doing great, thanks. How are you? I'm good. Now, tell me, Natalia, what is it you do for WSET? <laughs> it's uh, quite a complicated question to answer. I feel I get to do lots of fun things, but my role is a business development manager for our new beer qualifications. That means I need to work on ensuring that we've got demand for the qualifications. So I am talking to folks in the industry, whether that's at trade shows or conferences or reaching out to them directly to let them know about these brilliant new courses and qualifications. But then I'm also ensuring that we've got supply. So I'm working with our network of approved course providers to get them ready to offer the beer courses and qualifications. I also get to teach on occasion as well. My background's in beer education, so I love being able to make sure that I know our qualifications inside and out too. And I work on some content creation for our marketing team. So making some blog posts, hosting events, hosting tastings, etc. So really varied. I just love talking to people about beer and want to get the word out about these new qualifications as well. Sounds like you've got quite a lot on. I went straight to saying WSET, which is Wine and Spirit Education Trust. 
for those who haven't come across you before. So for them, can you tell us what is WSET there for? What do you do as an organisation? Sure. So the clue is in the name, really. As you mentioned, we are the Wine and Spirit Education Trust. And we were founded in 1969. And today we have become the world's leading provider of drinks education. So whenever the organization was founded back in 1969 here in the UK, the focus really was on serving the growing educational needs of the UK's wine and spirits industry. Today, though, we have grown massively. We now have a network of over 800 approved course providers around the world, and we offer our courses and qualifications in 15 different languages. Initially, it was wine and spirits focused. In 2014, we added sake, and just earlier this year, in 2024, we have now added beer to the mix. So you've been going quite a long time, and is that seen as the industry qualification, something from WSET, or rather, do you have competition? There are, of course, other providers of drinks education, but WSET has now become the leading global provider for what we do as an organization that's really trusted in this space, really well respected in this space. And everyone on the team really believes in our purpose, which is to empower people through inspiring learning experiences all over the world. So that is what we do day in and day out. And we hope everyone that takes our courses feels that way too. Having done a couple of courses with you previously, looking at wine, I felt very inspired. (laughs) Amazing. So beer, wine and spirit education, and now you're doing beer. Why beer? Why beer? I know it's a great question. So really, the reason that we have decided to move into beer is because, as you will probably have experienced just kind of being out at pubs and bars as a drinker these days, in the last 10 years, beer has evolved so much. There are so many different styles and flavors that are available in pubs and bars that just weren't there previously. And that has really led a lot of people who work in pubs and bars and also those who are drinking in pubs and bars to want to learn more. So we really felt as the leading provider of drinks education around the world, we should move into the leading global beverage, which is beer. So we've taken all of our learnings from wine, spirits and sake and applied them to the world of beer. So some of the main things that we've brought over, there'll be things that you're familiar with from taking a WSET course yourself, are our systematic approach to tasting. So this is a trademarked approach that we have created that really enables people to use this universal language to describe drinks and the aromas and flavors and tastes that they're finding. And it gives people a way to understand how we assess style and how we assess quality. So we've got the SAT or systematic approach to tasting now applied to beer. And WSET is really known for their interactive learning style. So nothing of what we do is a lecture. Everything we do is really about getting people involved. So we want to make sure you're having fun. We want to make sure you're doing activities. We want to make sure that you're tasting and learning the theory through the tasting. So it's really about getting participants involved in our courses, whether that's in person or whether that's online. So we've taken all of that and applied it to beer to really help bring all of this amazing new knowledge about a different category to life for those who are maybe totally new to beer or who know a little bit about it and are curious to learn more. So who exactly are you aiming this course at? Is it for people who are professionals in the drinks trade or is it for the enthusiastic amateur, if I can put it like that? (laughs) Well, we have developed the courses for both. So they really are um, developed for those who are 
as you mentioned, enthusiastic about beer and keen to learn more, and those who work in the trade. So the whole idea of what we want to get across in these courses, and we can get into the specifics of what each course covers, but really the focus is on helping people to develop their palates so that they can taste and describe beers with confidence, and also give them the knowledge to understand what beer is made from, how it's made, what makes different beer styles uh, unique from each other, and then of course a little bit of knowledge about how beer is best stored, how beer is best served, a bit about beer and food pairing as well. So we want to ensure that whether you work in the industry or whether you are a beer lover outside of the industry, that there is something for you in these courses. And again, if you're totally new to beer, we've got a place for you to start. Or if you're already coming in with a bit of beer knowledge, there is a place for you to start as well. I've signed up to do the online course. Now, just so that I can relay this information to my lady wife, exactly how many beers do you suppose I ought to drink to do the level two course? <laughs> well, I can let you know that we introduce you in level two to over 60 different styles of beer. And I think a lot of people often think, gosh, are there really even 60 different styles of beer out there? But there are even more than that. We introduce you to 60 in the course. You'll typically taste between 20 and 30 beers in the level two course. Oh, I am going to suffer. <laughs> Hard work, isn't it? <laughs> Have you got any tips for me in approaching this course? Yeah, so I think a few things to think about. We really do encourage teaching through tasting. So ensuring that you've got the right glass at home. Glassware is really important to all beverages, but beer especially. So have a great glass at home. Typically, we're thinking of one that has a little rounded bowl at the bottom for ease of swirling, a slight inward taper to help concentrate all of those aromas that you roused, and a stem helps us prevent it from warming up the liquid too quickly. So have a great glass, then you've got your range of beers that you're going to taste. And fortunately, you're going to work with some great educators to support you throughout your course, and they'll be the ones to teach you how to use the SAT or the systematic approach to tasting to be able to look at what a beer looks like, what it smells like, what it tastes like, and really learn everything you can from what's in that glass in front of you. At level two as well, you'll learn how to do a quality assessment. So really understanding whether this is a good example of a beer, a very good example, an outstanding example, and you'll be able to uh, be taught all the different things that make an outstanding example of a beer. So it should be balanced. There should be some level of complexity, some definition in there. And we define all of these things for you. So I think make sure that you go into it with an open mind, enjoy all of the different activities, participate in those different activities. Again, doing that teaching through tasting. And be sure to interact with all of the other uh, students in the course as well, because when you're doing that in an in-person room, it's much easier. But online, we offer that opportunity as well for you to get to chat in the forums with the other folks who are in the class with you. Uh, okay, so what's the most surprising thing you think I'll learn through this course? Oh, that's, that's a fun one. So we even introduce candidates to this at level one. Most people think about beer as being quite bitter. And of course, we've got a famous beer style here in the UK called the bitter. So it's something that um, many people expect all beer styles to taste bitter. And the bitter taste in beer comes from one of our ingredients, which are called hops. So hops bring the bitterness and they bring a lot of interesting aromas to beer too. And they're usually there because one of the other ingredients in beer, malted grains, will contribute the sugar that yeast then ferments into alcohol. So the bitterness will be there to kind of balance out any sweetness that's remaining. Not all beers use bitterness for balance though. We have got an interesting family of beers that we call sour styles or mixed fermentation styles that use acidity for balance. So we actually have some beers that you'll be introduced to in level one and level two that have a sour taste in them. And this surprises a lot of people 
But actually what I found about these sour beers is that they tend to bring in drinkers who prefer wine, who prefer cider, because there's more acidity in those beverages normally. So it's a really great sort of transition beer to be able to bring people into the world of beer. So some styles, if you're curious to look out for them, include things like a Berliner Weiss, a Gosa, a Goose, and you'll be introduced to all of these throughout level one and level two beer. And that I think tends to kind of shock a lot of people's palates, awaken a lot of people's palates and let them know that beer doesn't always taste the same way. The one beer that you've tried out in the world isn't what all beers are going to taste like. One of the things which I like, chicken soup beers. Have you come across chicken soup beers? <laughs> I'm not 100% sure I know what you mean by that, so give me a bit more detail. I have, a, I have an idea, but I want to make sure I'm going in the right so direction. So chicken soup beer is one which is so hazy, it is entirely impenetrable. You can't see through it <laughs> at all. It looks like a big glass of chicken soup. Often so, uh, some of these Californian styles with a little bit of sourness, but also quite a, quite a hit of tropical hops in there as well. Yes, so the hazy IPA, also known as a juicy IPA, I think the more pleasant descriptor for that would be like, it looks like a glass of orange juice or a glass of fruit juice. And that was sort of initially how that style got its name as a hazy or juicy IPA. That is another style that we will introduce you to. And that's a really interesting one because it uses hops, not necessarily for their bitterness, but more for their aroma and flavor. So we'll talk about process as well and how we can adjust steps during the brewing process to focus more on certain aromas or certain tastes. So really you'll get a really well-rounded introduction to what beer is made from, how we make it, how to taste it, how to store and serve it, and how to pair it with food as well. Then when you get on to level two, we also introduce a little more discussion and introduction to certain off flavors as well. So what happens when beer hasn't been stored appropriately or hasn't been served appropriately? And you'll get an introduction to those things too. Excellent. I can't wait for my books to arrive, my online learning classroom to fire up, and to get on with learning all of this stuff. Natalia, thank you ever so much for chatting with us today. I really appreciate your time. Thank you so much for having me. You're listening to Drinking with Phil and Mags on Petersfield's Shine Radio. So you've uh, talked about German beer, but you've just come back from Germany. I have indeed. And was it beer or was it wine or was it both? A little from column A, a little from column B. Mm -hmm. But we went to ride on steam trains and go up the Brocken. Okay. The Brocken where the witches dance. Do they? Very mystical place. and used to be a Soviet mm. listening station. Very Ooh. interesting. Of course, they pulled it all down and have done away with it all now. Yeah. But we went with great rail journeys. Mm -hmm. And uh, we had our tour manager, John, John Grundy, mm -hmm. who was a, a terrifically interesting guy who'd done a lot of different things and very conveniently spoke fluent German. Excellent. But he was really into his wine and he told us a little story which I got him to recount for me mm -hmm. and then we went on to talk about some more stories. Here Excellent. he is. John, you were telling us a story last night which I found particularly interesting. I didn't know any other history. So over to you. Tell us about Rotkapschen. Well, I presented this as a fairy story because it's the story of Rotkäppchen, who is Little Red Riding Hood. Only in this case, it's the story of a German sparkling wine, which carries the same name. When East and West Germany got together the political reunion of the country in, after 1989, people in the eastern part of Germany lost many things that were visually familiar. Their street signs changed, their car registrations changed, a lot of the products in the shops that they were used to disappeared and were replaced. But one product from eastern Germany remained and became a hit across the whole of the new country, and that was Rotkäppchen. 
which is, as I say, a sparkling wine known in German Zekt. Zekt is like Prosecco. It's the German for sparkling white wine. And you will find Hortkirchen on sale throughout the whole country to this day. Why Little Red Riding Hood? Because the sealer that you get on champagne and so on, in this case, it's red. And so it's called Hortkirchen, Little Red Riding Hood. That's what it looks like. Now, this drink was not known in Western Germany before the reunification, and it became a smash hit across the country. The German rail system started selling it in their onboard restaurants and so on and so on. And for people in the East who remember those days, it feels like one little triumph in the reunification. Zekt is sparkling white wine. It's very popular in Germany. Lots of the small producers in the Rhineland make their own Zekt. So there are specialists, Zekt Kellerheim, who make nothing else. But of the big industrial brands, Zuckerberg is definitely the champion nowadays. And you can find it practically everywhere. Every shop you go into, and they will have little individual serving sizes as well as the standard size bottles. And they have a range. It isn't just one wine that they do now. The last time I looked, they were offering four. Uh, a dry, uh, um, a sort of semi-dry, a mild, and I can't remember what the categorization of the last one was, but um, it's certainly more than one variety, yes. And do you happen to know, John, if road caption is Deutsche Sekt, or is it just Sekt? I don't know whether they, I mean, it certainly is Deutsche Sekt, it's German Sekt. Whether they put that on the label, I don't know. Someone had better buy me a bottle and we'll have a look and see what it says. So, Sekt is made from grapes. Yeah. Deutsche uh, Sekt is made from German grapes, grapes grown in Germany. Well, it almost certainly is, but I wouldn't like to go to the stake for that. <laughs> it's a very interesting story, and thank you very much for telling it to us. A nice little fairy story. So, Mags, your favourite bit of the show. Give us some drinking days. Yes, we've got some lovely ones in uh, March, actually. So, on the 1st, it's Icelandic Beer Day. Icelandic Beer Day? Icelandic Beer. So, um, in Iceland, beer was banned for a very long time. If you're interested in beer, like you are, Phil, you should probably go and look that up, actually. Well, I have. And if you listen back in our back catalogue, when when I went to Iceland, Iceland, I told the tale of Icelandic Beer. So, on the 3rd of March, it's National Mulled Wine Holiday. Where? Well, I think it's just one of those generic ones. where? I think it's one of those ones that might be American, and I think it's probably a bit more general, because for me, in March, mulled wine, it's not really mulled wine season. It's not mulled wine season. No, but very interestingly, on to the 5th of March, it's Absinthe Day. Absinthe makes the heart grow fonder. I it's did that joke. It's your joke, isn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. So absinthe is terribly interesting. Described as a dangerously addictive, psychoactive drug and hallucinogen. So why would you want that, Phil? Uh, I can think of a couple of reasons. I, absolutely. So there's Wormwood, lots of, it was originally. Well, lots of very interesting bits and bobs that go with it, um, and it's generally improved itself. There was a gentleman called Fujon uh, who allegedly improved the distillation process to essentially make it something that wouldn't kill you. <laughs> wouldn't kill you and turn you blind yeah, and mad. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. So it's no longer banned in most of the places around the world because when it came out originally, it absolutely would. But yes, the botanical is absinthium, which is wormwood. So that's been used in drink making for millennia. So the first recorded use of wormwood slash absinthe is basically in ancient Egypt. Um, And it's been used by French troops as a malarial preventative. 
Well, any excuse. Yeah. But to do it properly in France, of course, you have to have your absinthe spoon, mm-hmm. which is a perforated spoon. You sit a sugar cube on it, and the bar should have a, a sort of tureen of water. Yes. I'm sure that's not really the right word. Some, some water-carrying device mm-hmm. uh, with a little tap on the front, and you set the tap to just put drip. one drip every mm. couple of seconds, which goes through the sugar into your glass, which you position underneath Yes, your perforated, perforated spoon. spoon. That's the way you drink your absinthe. Well, the green fairy. And then the fairy. little green fairies appear, don't they? Absolutely. So that's a good one. Now, the 8th of March is International Women's Day. And I'm mentioning this in Drinks Months because there are a lot of extremely fine women winemakers out there. So that I think this is an absolute are. opportunity to celebrate that. We've got some cracking world-class winemakers in our own region. So the, the winemaker at Nightimber is a little bit further over than us, but the lady at Exton Park is well up there. So, you know, have a look. If you're interested in International Women's Day, have a look at your international women. Raise make. a glass. Yes, raise a glass. The 13th is Riesling Day. Oh, I'm all right with Riesling. Take it or leave it. good with the Riesling, um, yeah. There's one for you on the 20th. It's Bock Beer Day. Oh, Bock Beer. Bock Beer. So Bock or Superbock. Yeah, well, you might ask. Um, <laughs> and when I've done the course, I'll know the difference between you those will. two. So uh, on the 21st, it's Gallo Wine Day. So now Ga- this is obviously a now branding device. Now that's kind of commercial, that's isn't it? That's very commercial. We've got our own little wine day that sits there. 22nd, it's Water Day. We've included that. It's National Water Day well, in, in America. But we've included that because it's terribly important. Water is a key component of most beverages and very good for us. So, yes. You don't know this yet, but I have contacted the South Downs Mineral Water water company oh excellent we have somebody bottling mineral water from the south downs almost on our doorstep and i'm hoping to arrange an interview with them that we will be able to listen to next month that will be fabulous so water is a mixer you're probably familiar with it i am familiar with that on the 17th i've missed that it's st patrick's day ah sure it is so we shall be drinking some guinness Guinness. or some of our guinness Guinness zero Zero. yeah Yeah. which we're quite keen on we plugged that three months on the line where's our free case guinness (laughs) you haven't even replied to me about an interview yet the 24th of march is cocktail day Oh, no, again? Okay, yeah, How many it, times a year does that come round? It comes around many, many times. Normally it's specifically a named cocktail, so I've just randomly picked one. Go want, for it, come on. Was. A French 75, or simply, if you are French, it's a Soissons cans. So it was invented in World War One in a New York, uh, in the New York bar in Paris in 1915. Harry, the barman, mixed gin, champagne and lemon juice with a little sugar. Now... If we think what was going on in France in World War One, champagne was somewhat scarce because obviously they were fighting so in the trenches, way which of were stretching out your champagne. So it's a way of essentially stretching out your champagne, and it's described as being one of the most underrated cocktails that there is. Well, if you're going to stretch out your champagne, have a black velvet. Well, you could, but I quite fancied having a Soissons cans. No jokes. No yes. jokes. There you go, that's drinking days, Phil. <laughs> Thank you so much. Barely a moment left for you to tell us your wine recommendation, Mags. I went classic, I went Muscadet, Sevre et Mans, Surly. Now, there's a distinction here. So, um, for it to say Surly on the label, it has to have been in cellars from March the 1st to December the 31st, a year after harvest. So if you see it on the label, that means that's happened to it. This is a vegan wine that I bought from Sainsbury's. It was £10.50. But there's currently an offer on at the moment. So if you buy three or more, you save 25%. Absolute classic expression of what you talked about. Really crispy, really zingy. Little bit of a flinty edge. 
but because of the time on Lee's, there was a really lovely full velvety mouthfeel. There was like a fullness and a roundness, but it kept its bright acidity. And it's, I would say, a really elegant wine. Schist and granite slopes that it was built on, obviously near the Loire. You said perfect with seafood. I did not have it with seafood. I actually had it with roasted veggies, and that was quite nice, actually, roasted root oh, veggies. Okay. So I would say we can branch out. I mean, I wasn't perfectly wine and food matching, but it was that happened to be the wine I was like, oh, I need to try that because we're doing that, for, <laughs> doing that for the show. And also that happens the to be what we're having for dinner. So, yeah. But, yes, vegan. So um, we should pay, pay, pay attention when wines are vegan because, obviously, there's quite a growing trend towards veganism. Maybe, maybe we'll talk about that. Hmm. I think we should future, at some point. But yeah, episode. so no icing glass in the fining process or egg whites. So you're all good. Yeah. And there's lots more yeah. that could be in there, yeah. but hopefully isn't. Yes. So there you go. Crumbs, that all went very quickly. What are we doing next month? Uh, I don't know, Phil. I suspect we'll have drinking days. I think I'll have to... I'll have to have some therapy from you about how my wine course has gone and you can give us some progress and updates I'll on the talk beer. about the beer. Uh, and hopefully we'll have... Well, we will definitely have more Lost Pubs at Petersfield. Mm-hmm. We will hopefully have an interview with our mineral water company. Absolutely, that would be great. Um, shall we do Cabernet Franc? Oh, let's do Cabernet Franc. You yes, can tell us about it and yes. I'll come up with a Yeah, yeah, because you've said you don't like it very much, so you can challenge yourself well, on that one. I'm not a huge fan, but I know exactly which area I'm going to for this, and it's in France. Yes, well, my guess, ladies and gentlemen, is that it'll be a Samoa. Not saying. <laughs> Until then. All right. Bye Bye for for now. The Petersfield Seed Swap is your chance to plant some ideas for your garden. Or on your allotment, Claire. Of course, Steve. We'll be there to help you pick up some inspiration and advice. And enjoy some specialist talks from experts. Helia Bowling will be in town to help you start a cut flower garden. And I'll show you how to plant an amazing veg plot. Plant some ideas with us at the Petersfield Seed Swap. It's on Saturday the 9th of March at Winton House in Petersfield Town Centre. And it's funded by the UK Government through the UK. UK Shared Prosperity Fund. And you'll find more details at shineradio.uk. Happy gardening.